Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to the 23rd edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and it's always an honor and a privilege to interview elite retired athletes and people that have paved the way for the sport that they exuded excellence in. And uh, this particular edition is no different. And this is definitely one of my, will be one of my best shows as I'm interviewing a, a true legend. She was one of the pioneers of the Women's Tennis Association, the WTA as we know it now. In her illustrious career, she's won 18 Grand Slam singles titles, 157 WTA tournaments, 32 doubles tournaments, and has a singles win percentage of 90%. She's made the most Grand Slam finals of any player in tennis history with 34. And she also served as president of the WTA and continues to be heavily involved in the sport as a prolific analyst, coach, and humanitarian. It is my privilege to introduce (laughs) the one and only Miss Chris (laughs) Everett. How are you? How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I, um, I, wow, that's pretty impressive, but you know, it doesn't seem like me, but that's right. <laughs> but you did it. You did it. It's, it's I there. It. <laughs> it's <did> documented. It. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> yes, indeed. Can't, we can't quit now though. Can we? That's right. That's right. For sure. And, and, and I, I really, um, it's great to speak with you and, and I want to ask you right now, you know, where are you at, especially, uh, with the pandemics over the past three months and, and, and especially with the halt of sports, what, what have you been up to? Oh, lot's been going on, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. since March, a lot's been going on yes. one thing after another and the pandemic was first and it kind of blew everybody's minds that, you know, we had to live a certain way. We had to live with discipline. We mm-hmm. had to live with restrictions and we had to live inclusively, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I have no complaints because I have a nice house and I live in Florida and I have my mask and I have my family and, and everyone's healthy. So, you know, it would be really kind of selfish and of me to um, say, oh, God, I just, I want to get my roots done. And I just, I want to get a manicure mm. and, you know, that all, all that stuff, who cares? You know, it's not even important. So I was fine. I was fine with that. And we actually, um, I'm at my tennis academy now. We, we opened it up like three weeks ago with mm-hmm. all the instri- the, the um, restrictions about, you know, again, tennis is such a great sport for this because you're on one side of the net, mm-hmm. other person's on the other side. You can have your own can of balls that only you can touch. You right. know, we have, right. we have one coach on the court with a mask mm-hmm. and um, separate chairs. And, and it's just so far so good, knock on wood, it, it's worked. But you know, you've got to put your foot down and you've got to be, you can't be lazy and you can't be um, relaxed with this at all. You know, then, then the racial, um, you know, all of the, the racial situation and, yeah. and yes. it, you know, that, th- that was, you know, obviously meant to happen because mm-hmm. the system is, the system is broken and, you know, there's an outcry and, and then that, kind of um opened up um another like can of worms not i hope that's okay to say say it that way but like everything's coming out now you know the inequities the hurt the pain 
um, the violence, um, the, the police, the police's role in all of this, yes. society's role in all of this. So, yes. you know, there's some very, this is a very trying time. This is a very uh, reflective time, I think, mm -hmm. for, for all of us and to really search deep within us and, and figure out a lot of things about ourselves because that's where it starts. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's interesting on your Instagram, you talked about, you know, challenging yourself to be more empathetic on the plight and struggles of black people, which is, which is banned for 400 years in this country, in the Western hemisphere. And, um, yeah. you know, and this is something that I, I, it's great that you're speaking out on and, and I'm glad that you're, that you're really acknowledging that. What are your thoughts on how the majority of this country can be able to learn collect collectively as well yeah. as what have you discovered in, in, in this purpose of learning about black history, as well as, you know, being more uh, delving deep into your conscious. Right. Well, you know, I have two things to say about that. First of all, my upbringing, I was born in the fifties mm -hmm. in 1954. And when black people were colored that I was born with that, only that word in my, um, everywhere around me in society. And it was the coloreds and they lived across the tracks and, you know, they didn't live with us. And, you know, there was such, there's still segregation during that time. And, you know, what I'm examining is as, as I get older and older and older is, um, I, you know, I just, I have to search within me and see if there's any residue there. Mm -hmm. of any sort of those indoctrinations or beliefs that people had in the 50s because mm -hmm. you know we have to confront that and we have to really think hard and long about it. i think every white person has to do that and yes. um yes. what i love 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 about this generation <clears throat> is that they're fearless and right. what i love i mean we we had fear in the 50s they have no fear you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of pain in the 50s, a lot of fear, but this generation goes for it. And this generation, they speak their minds. They are brought up that um, people of all color are equal. I mean, I see it. My sons look at me like, you know, I have three sons in, in, in their 20s and they don't, I mean, they went to school and I mean, there was no difference. Right. And the color right. of your skin. It, this is this generation. And that's why I think that I think it's going to, I think this time it's going to work. And I think this time we can't let it up for one second, you know. And I think, you know, the other thing is um, to create change, sometimes you have to go through extreme drastic measures mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, in order for, for change to happen. And so there's the rock throwing or demonstrations or whatever, getting into people's politicians' faces. It has to be done. I, I want this time, I think everybody wants this to be the last time because there, yes. have been, there have been efforts in the past, but then they fizzle away, you know, and because we don't, everybody, it's everybody's fault. Nobody really sees it through the end. Um, and, and, people, and now, you know, I, I watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of CNN and, and I know it's like CNN, Fox, you know, but I watch. I like, <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, I like co it. Complete opposite ends yeah, of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like CNN and I, and I, um, 
said in when I wrote, I said I, I really would like to learn more about Black history, and mm. um, I knew Althea Gibson, I knew Arthur Ashe, mm. I knew what they brought. Yes, um, yes. I actually went over. I actually went over to South Africa with Arthur and a few other players when he went over there when there was apartheid going on. Yes, and I saw him play his match and then give clinics to thousands of black children and then have meetings with Mandela at night. Wow. Yes. And I felt honored, you know, and, and, and a lot of tennis players got criticized for going over at that time, but it's like, but we're going with Arthur and we're going because he wants to see change and yes. we're not going to support apartheid. So I've had a lot of that. And I went over to Martina, I, you know, another, um, another level i went over to czechoslovakia with martina naftalova after she had defected from mm. czechoslovakia and communism mm -hmm. and i saw that reaction to her and i so i feel like i feel like you know it's it's not only it's about every every minority you know everybody has a different color of skin everybody has a different religion everybody has a different sexual preference every, you know it's yes it's but i think that this specific one with black, with black, with black people, I think, you know, I think it's um, a long time coming, and I and I'm very supportive of it. And all I can do is throw my love in there and read up and ask questions, reach out to my black friends. I I have three good black girlfriends who, you know, and I ask them, and they've never really talked about it before, but they they all say they're they're petrified for their sons, and I go well. That's all I hear on the news. And it, it, it hit close to home. They said, oh, oh, yeah, this is happening. It's like there's a culture out there. You know, I've met a lot of, I've met a lot of great policemen. You know, there are a lot policemen are, they're here to help save us and help us and protect us. But there mm -hmm. is definitely a culture of policemen yeah. that, that, um, that, Very destructive. that are not nice, not, are not good people. Mm -hmm. And that have one thing on their mind, and, and that's to go after black people and um mm -hmm. all my friends are the same way they're like i'm I fe i'm fearful for my sons you know and and what happens if they get stopped in the middle of the night for um driving too fast or i mean what they do how they handle how police that culture handles that specific black young man compared to a white young man it, it, right. it may be very different here with chris Everett one of the greatest tennis players ever and, and uh, humanitarian as well here on, on where they at the 23rd edition. And um, Chris, wow, there's, there's a lot to talk about with you uh, and, and your background is very, uh, very intriguing. Your, your father, uh, the late Jimmy Everett, great coach. Uh, he played in, yep. in, at Notre Dame and, and your mom, Colette, was with you all the time traveling around with you, you know, especially when you were a prodigy. Um, and you have four siblings all involved in tennis. So uh, talk about that background of growing up with tennis and, and starting at age five and the mindset that you developed and the foundation you developed to become one of the all-time greats. Yeah, my dad played. Yeah, he actually was a player on the tour, and then he got drafted and went into the Navy. And then when he came back, he had to work as a teaching pro. He had to earn money. He was married, and he and uh, he he and my mom had five children, like you said. Mm -hmm. And when we were five years old, um, my dad, each of us, when we were five, would take us over 
to Holiday Park where we grew up. It was a public facility. And he would throw balls out of a shopping cart, you know, toss balls out of a shopping cart to us. <laughs> and I remember at five years old being very angry that he was doing that because he was taking me from my best friend, Kara Bennett's house. And we were having barbecues and going swimming every day after Aww. kindergarten. So my dad started picking me up and taking me. And I go, what is this all about? But I didn't, you know, there's a lot of fear in those days and whatever your parents said went, so you didn't argue with them. Yeah, to do. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, and, and our family, not only me, but my sister Jeannie um, was a top 10 player. And mm -hmm. all the kids won national titles. Um, my brother Drew, my brother John, and uh, Claire, my other sis, my young, youngest sister, mm. played number one for their college. So my dad didn't have to pay a cent, right. which is great. Yeah, like and SEC schools, right? Like Vanderbilt, right? I believe. Vanderbilt, yeah, Vanderbilt. All, all, all and all yeah, yeah, SEC, yep, and, yep. SMU. Yes. So, so later on, you know, my dad and I were having a conversation and I asked him, I said, what, what made you bring all of us into tennis, you know, such a young age. And, and I thought that he would say, um, uh, you know, the, the nice things like, I want you to travel the world or it, I thought it was a good way to earn a living or I want you to go to college or da da da. But instead he said to keep you kids off the streets. Mm-hmm. Yep. He was born. He was born in Chicago, and I think he saw a lot of yes stuff, bad stuff happening mm -hmm. after school mm -hmm. because kids had too much free time. Yes, too much yes. idle time. Mm -hmm. So that's why he brought us over there to be with him. And my mom played also, and uh, he could keep his eye on us, you know, every every single day. Right. So that was that was my um, upbringing. How why I made it? Um, I think in the beginning it was to please him. Like I worked hard because I, I like idolized my dad, you know, and I wanted to make him yeah. proud. So I did because of him. But then as I started winning national titles, I just realized that um, I had talent, you know, mm -hmm. and I mentally, you know, could, was a very good competitor and I was winning, beating girls older than me. And um, I wasn't the greatest athlete in the world, but I had other attributes that sort of helped me to win matches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that, and that was the thing, that emotional stability that you had, because it, it, you, you ended up getting the nickname Ice Maiden later on, you know, but, but that was what made you successful, right? Just to have that mental strength and be able to not to, to, to keep everything even keeled. Yeah, it definitely, um, mentally, I won my matches. I mean, I, I, at a young age, I would get mad on the court. And my dad, again, I remember him saying to me, Chrissy, don't let your opponents see how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And you can use that to your advantage. And they'll feel fr frustrated when they see that. Just be, just be calm out there. And sure enough, um, you know, as soon as I saw my opponent get really ruffled and um, get just uh, emotional, I thought, uh-huh, I have her. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Because your tennis always goes down when that happens, you know, you, when you're not emotionally managing yourself, your tennis uh, goes down like anything, like in a boardroom, like any, any, any business, you, yes. you've got to have that calmness and that focus. And mm -hmm. that's what I had. I, I, my gift was that I could focus on every point. Like it was match point. Ooh. Yeah. So I didn't, so I didn't give away a lot. I didn't that's give right. away a lot of freebies. I didn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't messy out there. I wasn't inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that, 
you know, I, I don't know if you're born with that or how, if you learn it yourself, I don't, who knows, but <laughs> that's mm. what I. And that augmented you to be uh, a wonderkin. Pretty much. I mean, you, you were at yeah. 15 years old, you defeated the number one player in the world, Margaret Court. And with that, and, and victories of defeating Billie Jean King as well at 16, et cetera, et cetera. Now, now, after that, many players, which we've seen young players like a la Jennifer Capriati kind of flame out with that early success, you years earlier were able to take that to another level and use that as a springboard. So talk about how mentally you were able to kind of like never be like uh, satisfied. You wanted to, to go to that zenith. Uh, maybe I was greedy. <laughs> mm, that's, that's a great word. I like greedy. I like that. <laughs> you know, maybe it was like, Hey, you know, um, I'm on top of the world. I'm ranked number one. I'm winning tournaments. Why should I, why should I quit? You know, mm -hmm. I, I, but I really, I had it in me in telling myself, don't let up because they're right behind you. They're right after you. They're right on your heels. Mm -hmm. They're right behind you and they're going to try everything they can. So when I would win Wimbledon, I would have a, a nice celebration that night. And then the next morning when I'd fly home, my mind would be on, Seattle, Washington, if that was my next tournament, mm -hmm. you know, I never rested on my laurels. I never lived, uh, you know, on one big title. It was like, I wanted to keep going. And, and when you look at Serena, Novak, you know, Roger, mm -hmm. all the, the great champions, that's, that's just the champion mentality of, um, you want to keep, you want to keep going. And, and also I think the top players take their losses pretty hard. And did you find that competitiveness to even transfer to how you live life? Like, for example, if you play Monopoly or if you were, you know, just having, having fun with your friends, like having a debate, did you find that competitiveness being everywhere in what you did? My friends and family say yes, and I say no. <laughs> I am amazed. I am amazed. Because I think who I play with, they're all competitive. So I'm competitive, but not to, not to the, I mean, not, I'm not competitive. I, I, I saw the Michael Jordan thing and he was competitive with rolling dimes. Right. Saw, oh, right? the last dance. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> rolling dimes. With security dimes. officers. With that... security. <laughs> he was pissed if he didn't. And I'm like, oh my God. So no, not really, not, not really. I mean, I like, I, I tell you what I do like though. I like to do things well, mm -hmm. you know, I don't like to look, I know I'm, I was great at one thing and I'm, n I'm not great at anything else. Okay. I'm not great at anything else um, when it comes to business or sports or anything, but I still want to be good at things. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, that's no, that's that's that forward, you know, forward progress, forward progression for sure. Wow. Here with Chris Everett. Um, International Tennis Hall of Famer, as well as one of the greatest American athletes to ever play uh, any sport. And um, here on the 23rd edition of Where They At, my name is Debatiao. So now it was interesting. It's interesting now, back in the 70s, there was no social media, you know, so no. well, pretty much a lot of private personal stuff was personal there were no camera phones anything like that um but there was so where is this leading 
Right. Well, with Jimmy Connors, the great Jimmy Connors, who was number one as well himself and, and everything and, and your relationship with him. But it's very interesting. You both were great. And we talk about competitiveness once again. Um, now, how difficult was it to be able to be involved with someone that was as great as you were at, you know, at the same sport? And how did that affect the, the dynamics of the relationship? And also the effect of having the public and the media talk about everything that was going on. And, and, do you, and do, are you happy that it happened in the 70s instead of in the 2010s? When we're in the social media where everything is really exposed. Yeah. I think we are, Billie Jean and myself and Martina, we look at each other and roll our eyes and say, whoo, whoo, <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> boy, back in those, I mean, let me tell you, there was a lot, the Australians were, men were like, you know, rocking and rolling, going discos, and I mean, there was yep. Venus Carolitis, <laughs> yes. Playboy Club, and I mean, we yeah. had some wild characters back there <laughs> in the 70s, and mm -hmm. um, yes, we are very happy. Um, uh, but as far as Jimmy and I, um, uh, you know, if anything, it helped me. It helped my tennis. I mean, I, I don't know. It, it, I mean, sometimes I made him hit with me, so it probably didn't help his as much. <laughs> but he didn't do badly. He was, he was still winning Grand Slams. But no, it was a fun. It, that was a fun time. And I always, I always say about Jimmy, if I, you know, if I was ever to choose a first love, he would be the one because we had, we had fun. But we were kids. We were kids. But we mm -hmm. had fun. And, um, and yes, I am glad that social media wasn't around in those days. It's just so different. But I still thought, I mean, the press were still camping out on the front yard. You know, we still had that. But yeah. we didn't have cameras wherever we moved around in, in the streets. And, mm -hmm. and I mean. Or I just, TMZ. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's really scary. It's, it's really um, I don't know. It's just gone too far. It's, there's just, mm. it, there's a lot of seedy nastiness in that, in that business that just for money, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I go back to the princess Diana death and, you oh. know, they were having cars, the cars were chasing her and the motorcycles and cars. And, and I mean, uh, come on, you know, just, um, all for money, all for money mm -hmm. and, and not with any, you know, sort of concerned for safety. And it's pretty scary. Yeah, very much so. And, and how do you advise the current generation of tennis players? Because I know a lot of them seek your, your advice and seek your mentorship. Um, what is your advice to them? Because they're in the midst of this social media era. Um, first of all, none of them really reach out to me. Um, if, anything, I'm, if anything, I'm learning from them. Remember, I'm old school. They're new, they're young school. Oh, but still history, knowing their history. You know, they, they, I have a few girls that ask me about specific uh -huh. elements of their game or, or pressure or mental da da da. Mm -hmm. But um, when it comes to attitudes, um, you know, I always admired uh, Richard Williams in the sense, that in the way that he taught his girls yes. to be fearless. You can be mm -hmm. great at anything go for everything, be fearless. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't, in a million years, I could never hear my dad say that. <laughs> my dad was more like, 
worried about what the neighbors would think. And my dad was more like, um, don't make errors and, you know, don't be controversial. And, you know, it was that, that, that era, that generation in the fifties, the sixties. Mm -hmm. Um, and nowadays I really, I learned from my boys who are in their twenties and about just, but I find that it's, it's all in the words, you know, how you say something, right? Words yes. are, you know, words can be very cruel and then words can be very kind and um, you get your point across without being nasty about it. Mm -hmm. So, but I love the fierceness and I love the, um, just the, I don't know, this, this young generation, they just say it like it is. They, we, we thought it like it is, but they're saying it like it is. Yes. And it's becoming, it's, this is the acceptable way to be in the in 2020. And that's why I have faith in this revolution or however you want to, to, to describe it, um, that the young people will carry this through. Mm -hmm. That's right. Where others, where others haven't. That's where right. others have. That's right. And they have and to, you know, mm -hmm. you know, other, it's not all, it's not even, I mean, I think that the, that, the way that George died was the most horrific thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, yeah. I felt like, I felt like it was a lynching. I felt like it was Ku Klux Klan all over again. I felt like we just went back so many years, but there are other things that stem from that. There are other things that, that are connected with that. And, um, and I think that it's not all, again, it's not all about, the police force and the blacks, you know, I think it's, it's really opened up things where it's about all of us, mm -hmm. especially and white, privilege, especially white privileged people mm -hmm. to really examine their conscience and take a deep look. And, and I felt that when the pandemic happened, I said, well, this is going to be going to give me time to kind of reflect on my life and see what's important to me. And maybe I'll have a different perspective and, but this is another layer. This is really getting down and deep. Yes. You know, because this is about humanity. I've never walked in your shoes. I have, I, I can try to understand and I want, I just want to be supportive, you know, and I think a lot of people do. We're all in this together. I feel like we are, are all in this together. Yes. Do you yes. feel the support? I, I, I do. I do feel the support. Um, I feel uh, the great thing about it is that everyone's listening. That's the thing, because a lot of people, and I think it's human nature to give their own opinion on something, but now yeah. they're mostly they're listening. They're not saying, yeah. oh, it's like they want to say it, but then, oh, okay. Then they sit because we have two ears and one mouth pretty much. So, and that's, and now it's, that's what it's all about and, and being empathetic. And that's, and I think it starts from education reform into having children understand culture and understand uh, the stereotypes that, that pretty much are going on because those stereotypes go into the subconscious eventually, you know, and those thoughts that come yeah. from, so it's all about that communication for sure. Well, so. and then they've got to change the books that these kids, they've got to change right. the tools oh, because some of this stuff crap mm -hmm. when i it's they're not i mean it's so biased even the history books in elementary school you know mm -hmm. and and it's um they should be definitely rewritten um yes. 
But talking, I agree with you. Everybody, okay, so there's a conversation. Everybody's talking about it. But then there's got to be something more than that. There's yeah. Gotta yeah. And there's got to be movement. There's got to be, you know, this, the one thing that, um, and this has come at such a, a, a great time because it's ironic that the USTA Foundation, um, I'm the chairperson of the USTA Foundation, mm -hmm. and that's all about um, helping underserved, under-resourced kids. And right. there are 400 programs in America mm -hmm. that the USTA is servicing after school, just like Jimmy Everett said, after school programs. Yes. You get to play tennis, you get to play in a group, you get to have a lesson, you get mentoring, you can get, you know, mentoring, you can also get um, help with your schoolwork. That's right, tutoring. It's, mm -hmm. it's for, it's, you know, the parents are working I and mean, the kids have nowhere to go. And this is what um, the USDA is doing. And we actually, we've, we have, you know, we try to raise money for these programs. And as I said, 400 programs, I think 180 kids we've helped. Mm -hmm. And we continue with them after, even after high school and try to get them, um, direct them, right. steer them in the right direction for college. And That's a lot right. of them get college, you know, scholarships, but you know, it's, it's like, that's the same thing with investing in communities with socioeconomic problems. That's what everybody has to start doing is put an investment in these. And that's what I think the USDA is trying to do is putting in investing in these kids and yes. giving them hope. And, um, it, look, everybody, if everybody just did a little something, it would, it would be great. I think it right. would happen. It takes a, a collective, that collectiveness, absolutely. And, and um, wow, and, and now, and I want to talk more with you about American tennis, you know, because okay. you, you talk about with the USTA trying to be able to, to, um, to get, at, not just like to use tennis as a tool for success, but then there are those kids that really want to be able to pursue tennis as their livelihood, as their life, as their passion. So the American tennis now, especially American males, there hasn't been an American of, that's won a Grand Slam since Andrew, Andy Roddick in 20, uh, 2003, excuse me. Like, so that's deep. Like, what is the status of Americans well, coming up, especially black American males too? Because Mal Washington's really the last one that has made a Grand Slam final. So what... Uh, is there is there a light at the end of the tunnel with that? Well, look, this is the way I look at it, and mm -hmm. I could be completely off. Mm. American sports, there are ten sports that are more popular than tennis, and I, I feel like our best athletes are going to team sports. Right. And I feel like there's when you look at football, baseball basketball, soccer. I mean, you, I can, I can go on lacrosse, you know, I could just go on and on. Um, I feel like there are a lot more male athletes going into those sports, even though female athletes have more uh, resources and have more openings and have more opportunities in, in other sports. I feel like ten, women's tennis is like the number one sport in yes. the world. Yes. And, you can just see because of the money. I mean, it's money measures it must sponsorship TV, mm -hmm. but, um, men's tennis, you know, they're just, we're, we're not getting the best athletes and we are, um, and when, when you look at the smaller 
countries like, you know, Roger Federer, and I mean, like, like Switzerland, and there's um, two or three top 10 players in Switzerland, and yeah. you look at Spain, and there's a, the smaller mm-hmm. countries, tennis is number one or number two mm-hmm. in population. Right. Russia. Russia is really emerging. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Every young boy wants to become a tennis player. Mm -hmm. And but in America, um, I mean, every young boy doesn't necessarily want to be. And and individual sports are not for everybody. They're not for everybody. Right. Not a lot of kids can. I've seen kids at my tennis academy and they struggle and struggle and, and their parents come to me. And I, at, at some point, I have to look at them and say, you know, I would ask my ch- your child, you know, how are they in team sports? Oh, they're smiling and they're da da da. They're having fun. And I go, well, you know, maybe right now, one on that one on one intense competition isn't the right thing for your son. You know, maybe put him in team sports and then visit revisit tennis to see if if you know he's grown out of it or if he can get into it. But um, so I, I think it's that. It has nothing to do with good coaching. It has nothing to do with money. It has a, I think it's just just where our, most of our athletes, they want to be a football player. They want to be a baseball player. They want to be a golfer. And they want to be basketball. You know, they just, it's more, I don't know, appealing to team sports. Yeah. And also you're not exposed. In individual sports, it's all you. That's it. Everything is, if you have a bad game in basketball or football, you have your teammates to pick you up. <laughs> yeah, you have that support and camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Listen, mm-hmm. I played in an individual sport, but when I played Fed Cup, Federation Cup in yes, America. Yes, indeed. Oh, yeah. And I, at one point, had Martina on my team, Pam Shriver on my team, Zena Garrison on my team, Billie Jean King as my coach. Now, how happy was I? Mm-hmm. How happy was I? We, we, no competition. I practiced, Marti- I played my best tennis because I get to practice against the greatest players. Mm-hmm. Billie Jean gave me some great advice as a coach. So mm-hmm. I had the greatest coach out there. We had a ball. So mm-hmm. I'm like, God, <laughs> bring, bring some of this to this individual sport, you know? Yes. Wow. No, absolutely. And, and those, and it's always the Davis and Fed Cups, always exciting to watch for sure. End yes. of the year. Yeah. Just always great to see. Um, while here with Chris Everett, uh, International Tennis Hall of Famer, of course, one of the greatest American athletes ever on Where They At, the 23rd edition. My name is Debate Isles. And now, speaking of Martina Navratilova, I think, I think personally, it's the greatest rivalry in sports history. I mean, you two, what you two have done, and these are my bottling stats. I mean, 18 Grand Slams between you both. Each of you won 18 Grand Slams. Then, this is what's crazy, Chrissy. 615 weeks, the first 615 weeks of the WTA rankings, there were only 23 weeks that you or Martina were not number one. Only 23 out of the 615 weeks. That's just amazing. And she, she said something interesting that when she first played you, she wanted, she wanted you to know her name. And, you know, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And then, you know, she developed her mindset to be more aggressive, but you made adjustments with your game to be able to counter yeah. the adjustments she made. It was a chess match between you two. Um, how beautiful was it to, to experience that, the memories, and how it pretty much resonates with you for the rest of your life on how you two pushed each other? 
Well, we're the best of friends now. It ha- that mm-hmm. should say a lot. At yes. our age, we're, the, we're in our 60s and we're the best of friends. Mm-hmm. And I have her back. She has my back. And we have tremendous respect. Um, I think that I learned so much from her because she was so different than me. I mean, look at the contrast. She was brought up in a communist country. Yes. I was brought up in a land of freedom. Mm-hmm. She was an emotional player. I was a calm and cool player. Mm-hmm. She was a serve and volley or aggressive player. I was a baseliner. Mm-hmm. She's a lefty, you know? a lefty too. She's a lefty. <laughs> I was a righty. You know, I mean, it comes down to she was gay. I was straight. I mean, let's just get it, out. Let's get it all out there. You know, yeah. I mean, we had so many um, contrasts and mm. we're so different. Yet, it worked out. She brought her set of fans. I brought my set of fans. Our styles were so different. It was like, so our matches were never boring because you had oh. every kind of shot in the book. Mm-hmm. And um, our personalities were so different. And I just, um, she pushed me to become a better tennis player. I pushed her to become a better tennis player. And it, it is one of the highlights, um, maybe even bigger than each of our careers individually. I don't know, but it is definitely a big highlight for me. And I'm so happy that I had someone like that to push me to become, she made me become a better athlete. She made me go to the gym. I was like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So I went into the gym and started lifting weights and she was lifting like 20 pound weights and I was lifting eight pound weights, but you know what? I was lifting weights. Mm-hmm. More reps, more reps, more reps. That makes you stronger. You know, definitely. I'm going to get up to her weight. I don't think I'm ever going to get up to her weight. And, uh, and, and she, you know, even though we had some competitive times and times we didn't talk to each other because it was 18 years, we had our ups and downs. Mm. But at the end of the day, we were the only ones left in the locker room. That's and right. Always. During the finals, one of us would be crying and the other one would be comforting her, that one, the one that was crying. Mm. So we became, we became close and it was really a deep closeness where we're not in each other's lives every single day, but we text each other all the time and I'll see her grand slams and I'll go to her house. She lives. It's so funny because I ended up in Aspen where her home was and she ended up in Florida where my home was. So mm. we even lived in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <Wow. laughs> but she wow. taught me a lot. You know, she, she taught me a lot about being brave because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a chicken. I'm very conservative physically, you know, I'm, I'm like an observer. I'm not that, I'm not super outgoing. I mean, I wasn't as I was growing up and she taught me about being courageous, uh, fighting for what you believe in and, Mm -hmm. um, and don't, don't worry about what people think. Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. Wow. And, and, and now name the three most memorable matches between you two because there've been so many, but name the three, yeah. either, either when you're on the winning end or the losing end, even in that losing end, you still played at such an elite level anyway. So what are those three matches that say if a tennis fan, someone that just started watching tennis, you would say, um, okay, these three matches you need to watch. Okay. Well, obviously two of them I had to win. So I'm going to say <laughs> 80, 85 well i'm not going to pick three that she won 85 <laughs> 85 and 86 french open mm-hmm. 
Yep. I remember the 86 French Open. I actually saw that. That was one of the first tennis matches I ever saw. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Well, 85 was even more exciting. 85 was, it was really, well, I had lost to her 13 out of 14 times mm -hmm. and nobody expected me to win. And that was, that made me play tennis for another three years. That was my favorite Grand Slam. So those two pair, uh, and then one at the U.S. Open where she beat me 6-4 in the third, um, where I think the quality of the match was superb, and I think it's in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I remember that because I was crushed. I was crushed. I got it to three all, four all in the third set, and again, I just I wanted so badly, but I got a little tentative, and she just played the big points better. And she won the match. But I just remember how I felt like I really played well and I still lost. So I was kind of devastated by that. I, I really would rather get blown off the court than, than play really well and get it so close and then lose. Because you always feel like, God, you know, I, I, I could have won. But if somebody just blows you off the court and they're just too good, mm. then I think that's easier to accept. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that you're right because it's it's that's that's the thing because you really I mean it's about a battle of attrition of attrition you know when you're yeah. going that far and going that deep and no I totally yeah, yeah. understand putting that. everything into it putting yes. your guts heart soul your guts you know but and then and when you really believe you can win and then you don't win oh wow does that do play tricks with your head you know now retirement you mentioned something where. Uh, you kind of like, because you always said that you, pride, you were always, you know, pushing forward always, never like losing your concentration. But later in your career, you felt that was happening during matches yeah. and everything like that. And then you said you had to retire. Um, but, but you started to open up too, towards the end of your career, Saturday Night Live, making an appearance on Saturday Night Live and everything and doing that. Talk about those things that really helped you open up your personality and show the world that Chris Everett is engaging, not just on the court, but off the court. Yeah, I think it had a lot to do with um, who I married too. I was married at that time to Andy Mill. Mm -hmm. And Andy was, he was a downhiller, um, ski racer. Mm -hmm. And he was in the Olympics and he was very aggressive in his skiing and, and very, again, fearless. Like I'm, I'm, I married an op the opposite of me. You know, maybe that's why I'm attracted to people that are the opposite of me because I feel like I feel like they can teach me things mm -hmm. and, and I can learn from them and it expands my, me and my horizons. Um, but he was always, he was great. I mean, he was always telling me to go for my shots, go, go to the net, be aggressive. But mm -hmm. I, I would look at him and I go, okay, uh, for the last 30 years, I've played a certain way and won. So be quiet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and he would say, yeah, but you're not winning now. And I go, you got a point, <laughs> you got a point, you know? So I think he opened up, we, we moved to Aspen. I lived in the mountains. I started to ski, which I'd never done before. Mm -hmm. And um, it, he just showed me a lot of new things in life. And I think he was instrumental in, in opening me up a little bit more. Mm, wow. And becoming a mother after retirement, becoming a mother, having three children, yeah. Uh, that was a, a whole yes. other chapter of your yes. life. And um, uh, talk about how you cultivated your relationship with your children. And remember, you know, coming up in a family where, you know, you had, it was excellence. It was about excellence. And how were you able to, to be a parent 
for your children and be able to kind of be patient with them in what they decided to do? Well, having three boys, (laughs) three boys, um, they kept me busy and they, because of Andy and I, especially Andy, he's a phenomenal physical athlete. Mm -hmm. They got those genes and they were not really happy with giving up. I mean, to be great at something these days, you have to give up everything and just Yes. One sport. But they, Andy had him skiing and then snowboarding. He had him riding, racing motorcycles. He had him playing golf. I had him playing tennis. Mm -hmm. Um, They just were doing so many sports and they were good at those sports, but nobody was willing to, I mean, they wanted to be a jack of all trades. Nobody was really willing to um, sacrifice and stop the sports just to play tennis or just to play golf. Now, in retrospect, my 28 my year old says, God, I wish you were a little tougher on me. And I, I go, Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. You I, didn't want want to, I don't want to be that typical champion mother that says, This is what you got to do. You know, I wanted them to find themselves what yes. they want to do. But maybe kids, maybe you need to guide them a little bit. You know, do we ever, do you have, do you have kids? Oh, no, no, not yet. I don't know. I mean, do we, I don't know if we ever get it right. It's just the most perplexing, complicated, yet fulfilling role, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the world. And um, I still don't know if I'm doing it right. I'm still having battles with them over certain things. But um, so anyway, they, they were very athletic and, uh, um, you know, tried to keep them as normal as possible and you know middle class as possible and not you know look we you try not to spoil your kids i mean Mm -hmm. but it's but then you end up sort of we all sort of end up um spoiling our kids (laughs) (laughs) right right and then it has to have it has to be that balance yeah yeah they're the best though they're they're my my the happiest i've ever been were, you know, was during their births and because they're people, you know, all this other stuff is sports and, you know, accomplishments. And it's all about, a lot of it's about ego. It's a lot of it's about only I can feel it. Um, but having a family with kids, um, again, you learn from them and your most difficult child can be your teacher in life. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yes. So my, so my therapist tells me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great. It's funny that you say that because even though I, I don't have children, I've, I've, been a, I've been a teacher for a long time. And yeah. Yeah, a difficult student can, yeah, definitely open things up and also give you a chance to be like, okay, how can I make an adjustment for this particular student? So it's, it's all about that for sure. So I agree. I'm, you got to treat kids differently. You just can't. Mm-hmm treat them all the same. And a lot of times kids don't like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a, there's a fine line, but it's a, it's a, it's wonderful to, to be a mom. I, I cherish it. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. So now Chris, there's so much to talk about with current tennis and everything, you know, uh, uh, what is your take on, it was interesting going back to, to men's tennis. We talked about American males, but overall men's tennis, uh, Serena Williams coach, uh, Patrick Maritoglu, 
very vocal about the lack of new fans, especially with with male tennis. What are your thoughts about his very candid take on it, as well as uh, the UTS Ron Robin tournament? All I've read about Patrick is that he wants players to be more vocal and more yes, more, more like charismatic, and, you know, like yeah. Kiprios vibe, you know, <laughs> that's right, like right. you know, like in like Johnny Mac, of course, during your era, how Johnny Mac was. <laughs> right. Coincidentally, you said was your father's favorite tennis player, but completely yes, different from yes, what he yes. taught you. Thanks. Thanks, Dad. After my dad told me to be quiet on the court, um, I, I was like, "What? He's your what?" And I told John. John was hysterically laughing when I told him that. Um, look, I it, it's a show. It's showbiz. Okay, it's entertainment. I'm mm-hmm. all for showing your personality and your charisma, and um, I, but two things. Some people. Like, I don't think I could have done that. I don't, I mean, I think I could have been a little more, you know, I could have embraced the crowd a little bit more, but if I'm, if I'm focused and concentrating, it would have been tough for me to do that. I think mm-hmm. everybody's got to follow their own personality. Right. You know, I really do. Um, and on the other hand, I think it's great as long as there's, there is a, a boundary as far as abuse, abuse of the linesman, abuse of the umpire. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think, you know, it was some of the things I remember Jimmy doing, you know, or John Macro doing a couple of times were, um, you know, disrespectful. And I, yeah. I, I'm, you know, I'm from the old school then, there. I, I say, do whatever you want, show your personality, but be respectful and follow, the, you know, follow the boundaries mm-hmm. of the way you treat people. And Serena, that whole incident that happened a couple years ago that against Naomi Osaka um, and everything, and, and just, just mixed feelings on that. What was your take on, on how that developed and, and everything and what Serena went through in that moment? You know, I have mixed feelings too, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I almost look at it a little bit differently now with, since all this, the racial... Um, unfairness um has really has really you know has really come out i i do look at it a little bit differently Mm -hmm. Um, i think that i think it was unfair of the umpire even though it was within his jurisdiction and it was in the rules to give a warning of coaching Mm-hmm. I think it was, he shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't have done it. Every coach coaches. It was the mm-hmm. finals of a grand slam. Yes. He should have warned her. He should have looked at her and said, I want, I'm just going to give you a soft warning right now. Your coach, I saw a signal and we can't, you can't do that. And mm-hmm. then maybe turn to Naomi and said, and the same for you. Right. I haven't, I haven't seen anything from your coach, but if I do see a signal, you know, the next time mm-hmm. I'm going to have a warning. So in that respect, I, I, I think he went about the wrong way. Okay. Breaking of the racket. Yes. Yeah, she should get a warning. The way she talked to him. That's, I don't know. That's borderline to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, she didn't say the F word, you know, she didn't mm-hmm. totally, but she was on him. She was on him. So that's, that's up for interpretation. Maybe, you mm-hmm. know, depending on the umpire. I just think the umpire, Carlos, could have handled it. I think he could have handled it better. Mm-hmm. And now that's my, 
interpretation now. I think he could have handled it better. And a lot of that didn't have to happen. Yeah. And we might've seen a different match. Right. Right. And, and speaking of Serena, um, Chrissy, uh, how important is it for her to pass Margaret court? Um, for the, she needs two more grand slams. It's been, it, she's been to a couple of finals and have been able to, to seal the deal, but how important it is, especially with, the way Margaret Court, her mindset is, you know, and, and how important would it be also for Serena to really augment her to be the greatest ever? Uh, that's a loaded question. Mm. That's a loaded question. Um, and I'm going to have, I'm going to say two things. I'm going to say, first of all, it, it's only how important it is to Serena. Okay. It doesn't yes. matter how important it is to me or, or anybody right. else. It's how mm-hmm. important is it to Serena? And yeah, she I was thinking will his, historically, I was thinking. Follow that, follow her heart with that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is, you know, I think too much emphasis is put on Grand Slam titles. Okay. And there are 40 other tournaments a year. Mm-hmm. And there are players like Martina who have won singles, doubles, mixed doubles, more than any other player, those three. There are players like Steffi Groff who have won oh. a, a Grand Slam and the Olympics in one year. That was a golden 1988, year. yes, indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Serena hasn't won as many tournaments, hasn't been as consistent. Um, her game is – I mean, probably the greatest game we've seen, the greatest game. But result-wise, you know, I, I don't I, – I don't know. I just don't um, put a lot on Grand Slams. I, I just think there's – it's uh, – I just think um, there's a lot of, of – a lot of players didn't play – I, I didn't play 12 Australian Opens mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in my career. I played six out of 18. Mm-hmm. Um, Monica Sells got stabbed and oh. that prevented her from oh. another five or six years of winning Grand Slams. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, I, she you, was you amazing. Can just, you can go on and on and on. Um, but I think you should take everything in consideration. How many tournaments, what percentage wins losses, how many Grand Slams, you know, you take it all into consideration and to, to determine who the greatest is. It's, it's hard for me because as great as I think Serena is, I also was in the era with Steffi and Martina. And I just think they have, they accomplished some unbelievable feats. Mm-hmm. And I put them right up there with her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, but at the end of the day, it'd be interesting to see um, how the Fetters and the Serena's and, Nadal's and Djokovic's, how they come back after this uh, long time off, because they're they're getting on in years. I mean, Serena, I thought, okay, Serena's either going to come out just all fired up and ready to go and playing mm-hmm. great and fit and everything, or she might come out saying, God, I've really enjoyed my time off with my daughter and my husband. Yeah, maybe this is how I want to live. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Roger, the same thing. You know, well, I've had surgery on my knee and 
I've had a great time with my family. And is, really, do I need to play another year? You know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Wow. I don't even know. I don't even know if they're going to play the U.S. Open. I mean, that's that's coming up next week. That's that's 50-50 in my mind. Mm-hmm. Right. Without fans. Without fans. Yeah, and 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 that's the thing, Chrissy. Um, Wimbledon not happening in this year. Do you think they could no. have still salvaged no. it? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I don't. I don't think so. I. I I mean, look what's happening now with the pandemic. I mean, yeah. now it's like everybody's relaxed a little bit. Now the numbers are going up again. Yeah, but the, I mean, the French Open post, you know, postponed theirs. I'm saying if Wimbledon did the same, maybe. Yeah, fall. but unfortunately, on grass, there's only one time of the year that Wimbledon can be played. See, I see. Yeah, that's very yeah. true. That's very and true. The French, we can play the French in September, you know. But that even that's not even that's not. I mean, I, that's the thing. It's everything's so uncertain right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very true, my goodness. And and I wanted to ask you, you named yourself, of course, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, Steffi Graf, of course, Serena. Who's the next woman's player to have that dominance that you see that has that potential if they really keep their mind right? I think the tennis world is very impressed with Coco Golf. Mm-hmm. Coco Golf. She's yes. 16. I mean, as far as if you're looking at a younger player, um, she's 16 and again has that that fearless uh, aggressive attitude um, is a wonderful athlete and has all the shots uh, and has a good mind and seems to have everything and all the tools that she needs to to become a champion so I would I would say her mm-hmm. would it, say. what's your take on uh, uh, Bianca Adrescu Bibi, how like with her, how her. she's I, how she's really augmented quickly. Yeah, she keeps getting injured. Uh, I don't know if we mm. can count on her because yeah. she's been injured so much the last three years, and she'll win a big title, and then she'll be out for three months, and then she'll win another big title, and then she'll be out for four months. So if she can get her body back, maybe this is the time that she's been able to do that. You know, which would be great, wouldn't it? But if she mm-hmm. can get her body back um, into a healthy state and really pick and choose her tournaments accordingly, uh, she her potential is, you know, incredible, enormous. Ash Barty's another one. Um, yeah, number one now, number one now in Ash the world. Ash Barty is number one. Um, Amanda Anasimova mm-hmm. uh, is is also a younger. I think she's about eighteen right now but she's a teenager still and she has a, a bright future. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, again, there'll be, there's no momentum for any of these players when they come back. So let's right. see the older established players or the young guns, you know, let's mm-hmm. see who picks it up the quickest. When the, when the smoke clears. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Wow. So one more, I, wa- I want to um, do one more thing with you, uh, Chrissy, and it's such an honor to have you on where they at. Um, so great to have a conversation with you and, and thank you for your honesty and thank you for your insight. Um, but I have a segment actually that I do with the different athletes I interview. Like for example, if it's baseball, it's hit and run. If it's football, it's no huddle. If it's basketball, it's fast break. For, for tennis, it's, go- it's called 
serving volley. And I wanted to ask you some quick questions and see, uh, you know, rapid fire questions and get get some um, answers for you. So, so cool. Here we go. Here's the first one. Toughest opponent that many people haven't heard of that you had difficulties with. Like that's not a household name. I know. I'm thinking. I'm thinking <laughs> like, Whoa. I mean, I'm thinking the quarters, the round of 16. Who did I hate to play? That was really, really, that gave me. Um... All right. How about Carleen Bassett from Canada? Okay. Okay. I wow. seem to have a lot of, uh, uh, I seem to have a lot of three set matches with her. Okay. Wow. Okay. Now the routine, your normal routine that you would have before every match that had to be consistent. Um, well, it depends if I played in the morning or at night, but let's say if I had a morning match, I would, um, try to get good sleep. I'm, I'm a big sleep person. Like I need to get 10 hours sleep. And oh, wow. I, Ooh. I know. <laughs> I try to get 10 hours. I, I, I praise you for that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you'd be surprised. A lot of, uh, most tennis players get a lot of sleep. Um, so I get a lot of sleep, wake up, have breakfast, usually room service. I didn't go out. A lot of players would go, oh, let's go to the, and I go, no, 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 no. I want to eat breakfast in my bed, in my pajamas. <laughs> so I'd have room service and then I go out to the mat, go out to the site with my coach and um, I'd usually hit about an, uh, about an, like if I had a 12 o'clock match, I'd hit at 10 mm -hmm. for 30, 45 minutes, you know, warm up everything right. and then go in the locker room, shower, get changed. And then I would want to be by myself, like for half an hour. I, I wouldn't talk to anybody. I don't want to have like little idle conversation. I would, I would just be in a corner, just focusing and visualizing mm -hmm. at the same time. Right. Visualization, the power of visualization for sure. Yep. Definitely. Yep. Yes. And uh, now the sport you would have, the sport you would have played if tennis never existed. <laughs> Probably golf because, you, because you know, I, I don't think I'm, and I don't think I'm a special, especially athletic, like Martina could, and Steffi could do track and ski and they could do all that. I think I would have to be at the sport that uses their head. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. isn't golf like that? Because I can pretty, yes. stay pretty calm and, <clears throat> and cool and collected. So probably golf. And, and, and it's another individual sport as well, where, where yes. you're there, it's, it's you and you against the field. Uh, now, the current player that would be the perfect doubles partner for you? Um, I'd take Serena as a doubles partner anytime. <laughs> with that serve, <laughs> with that serve and that return. Yeah, Serena. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. the, <laughs> now, the, Current player who reminds you of you? Oh boy. Um, God, tennis is so different now. It really, I mean, I would say game wise, Simona Halep, but mm -hmm. she's, she's a little more emotional than I am. Um, so. Oh, I like this answer. So, some more like. Simona without the. Physically emotion. and then, and then mentally, mentally, who's out? 
you know, these I'm supposed to have quick answers and I just don't, I don't have quick answers. I mean, that's okay. That's all right. The pace is going good though. The pace I, is going good. I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pass on that. Okay. Anybody. So that's being honest, being real. <laughs> exactly. And that's why you're Chris Everett and I don't see any of these other players being at that level. <laughs> Bad, but I, 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 then I think, okay, who's the, who's in the top 10? Let me think about who's in the top 10. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't, uh, cause I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what the players are thinking mentally, but I know physically, you know, I had a game more like, more like the, um, like Simona, Simona, out. Simona, Wozniacki, you know, those kind of players, aggressive baseliners. Yes. Wow. Now, the song that represents your life and demeanor, that one song, your theme song. Well, the one that I want to sing is I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good because, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I've been kind of quiet for so long, you know, and kind of timid and again, you know, very not uh, controversial and not telling everybody my opinions and, and not opinionated. So now it's like woman hear me roar because I'm, I'm getting older and it's like now or never better listen to me now. Right. Yes. 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 <laughs> and there are a lot of listeners. There are a lot of listeners for sure. So. <laughs> Well, well, so two, two more questions in the segment. Now, your go-to film, the film that you can watch over and over and over and over and over again. Sound of Music. Oh. Sorry. Corny. Sound of Music. No, Julie Andrews. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> like, those nuns sing. That's beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. and the last, last question in the Servant Volley segment, the advice or slogan that resonates to you from to this day, like something that was a sentence that was told to you? I'll go even, I'll go even deeper than that. I'll go the four agreements, the book, the four agreements. Yes, yes, yes. Be impeccable with your word. Mm -hmm. Do not assume. Do not take anything personally. Mm -hmm. That's and, tough and, for me. <laughs> and, work, and work hard and mm -hmm. work hard. Um, because especially, I mean, the, the fourth one is we all work hard, but the first three, be impeccable with your word. All right. Don't say something unless you mean it. Mean it. Right. And how about don't assume. How Do we assume? Do we all mm -hmm. assume? Mm -hmm. That's right. And do we all take things personal? Those three that, so it's called the four agreements and it's a book. And I mm. always, that's my go-to book. Great. Uh, conclusion and closure to, to serve and volley segment. And, and one more <laughs> question before I have you, uh, before I let you go, cause I know you're very busy. Um, now the Chris Everett pro celebrity tennis classic in November, uh, talk about that and talk about any other, uh, uh, charitable efforts that you've been involved in. Um, now and, and, and going into the rest of 2020 and hopefully as this pandemic yeah. hopefully ceases. You know, the thing, I love my tennis academy, but that's a business. But we also give free scholarships to, to kids that are deservingly. Yes, and named after your father. Named after your father. Yeah, huh? yes, Jimmy Everett mm -hmm. um, Tennis Fund. And um, I think the pro, I have two, two um things uh, two more things the pro celebrity i've been doing that for 
Um, it's, it's for the prevention of drug abuse. And I've been doing that for over 30 years and we've raised, uh, over $23 million for that, for the yeah. local programs here in South Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's about giving people second chance in life. And, mm -hmm. um, and then of course I mentioned the, the USTA foundation, which is really helping <clears throat> to provide, um, education and tennis training for, uh, under resourced, under resourced youths. And, uh, we have 400 chapters throughout the country and that's, and those two things, I mean, you get after I, after you have, listen, I've had my career, I've had my kids and now it's about me, my wellness, and it's about giving back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's pretty simple. Yes. And that's what, what makes you resonate in American culture, not just American culture, but world culture and what you've contributed to, to all of us and how you've inspired all of us for sure. And, and, and Ms. Chris Severin, honor and a pleasure to speak with you uh, today. And I thank you for joining me on Where They At. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you, Navate. Thank you all for listening to the 23rd edition of Where They At featuring Chris Everett, one of the great tennis players ever male or female what an insightful individual and and it was great to talk with her on a myriad of topics especially what's going on in current events not just with tennis but what's going on in our society and i thank her for taking the time out to join me on where they at my name is Debate isles and if you want to hear more episodes of where they at make sure you subscribe and or follow on spotify Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, et cetera, et cetera. Make sure that you, that you uh, subscribe and also rate the show and you'll be able to listen to the episodes. We're up to episode 23 now. So there is a cornucopia of great individuals who exude excellence in their particular sport, in their particular endeavor. And it's been great to, to learn from all of them and to be able to listen to their reflections on their lives. It's just been really wonderful. And if you like the music that you hear, you can go on my website, N-A-B-A-T-E-I-S-L-E-S.com. That's nabateisles.com to check out music from my album, Eclectic Excursions. And it's available through my website with links going to, to uh, Apple Music, to Spotify, to Tidal, to Google Play, to Amazon Music, as well as other digital music platforms. Also, you can check out where they add on Catropolis Radio Network as well. Catropolis Radio Network uh, airs the show every Monday night at 8 p.m. So thank you once again for listening and supporting where they at. And remember, please, everybody, be safe, stay healthy, be blessed, and also stay woke especially when it comes to the plight of black people and what we've been going through in this country. And I'll be back with another episode of Where They At sooner than later. God bless everybody. Bye-bye.